week we'll talk about becoming a data engineer or analyst and we have a special guest today Gloria. Gloria works as a business data analyst at ICE. Before working at ICE she was a researcher and at some point she decided to change her career and she enrolled in a data science bootcamp. She'll probably tell us more about that today. So welcome to our event. Many thanks for having me. So before we go into our main topic of today, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Uh, yeah, so I originally uh, studied uh, biology and psychology in the United States and then uh, decided to continue that track by uh, pursuing a master's in neuroscience here in Europe. Um, and then after my master's, I decided to join a research group here in Germany in another uh, city in uh, Magdeburg. And I worked in that laboratory for three years. The research I concentrated on was kind of examining effects of dopamine on a long-term potentiation or how memory is formed, essentially. Throughout my, my time there, I did realize that uh, after a while, I did have more of like, I guess, of a passion for the technical stuff rather than the theoretical, you know, scientific or biological background of my research. And also while I was there on my last year, I had to establish a technique. And so I had to build a lot of my own apparatuses of reconfigure machinery. And one of the things also was to learn how to program in the C language so I could do some data analysis. And that part I really enjoyed very much. Um, and I realized this is what I really wanted to do on the long term. And that um, in academic research field, this was not like so much a possibility for me. And I wanted to go to a field where I had more possibilities. So I decided, you know, at the end of my third year contract to, to not renew it and start doing the career transition. And so I eventually found this uh, data science bootcamp uh, here in, um, in Berlin, Spiced. Um, and I did that for three months and I really did enjoy it. I learned uh, so much more than I had anticipated. And then, you know, did the, the typical job hunt, you know, how everyone does, and eventually landed my spot at the company ICE as a business data analyst. Interesting story. So you said you needed to configure this machinery and write something in the C language. How did it look like this machinery? Is it something like you attached to brain or not brain, but like head? <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, so, I mean, I, I've done that before as well, but this one is essentially I had to work with animal tissue samples. I essentially had to harvest. Uh, brain slices, uh, unfortunately, for mice. And then I would have to place it in this massive microscope apparatus and hook up this little tissue sample to a bunch of different electrodes and wires. And then using the controllers, kind of uh, try to control the voltage and current that was being passed through the tissue and conduct my proper recordings and then collect all that data and analyze it. You needed to use C for, for doing this for controlling voltage and all that thing. Well, so no, the programs that had that were used to actually conduct the experiments and to do the data collection, I think they were probably based on some kind of C language, but this was all like, you know, software. It's not open source software. It's essentially software that the laboratory already buys and it's configured in the apparatuses and everything like that. The stuff that I had to do the program was I had to use this um, scientific program called Igor. It's not very well known in the open source community, but in the scientific community, it's pretty well known. And that program, it has like a flavor of, of C. It's not exactly C, but it's very, very close to C. And for that program, I had like a copy of it on my laptop and it was just the program that I knew I could easily import the, the data that I recorded to do the analysis. So I, I found this tutorial book on Amazon, ordered it, you know, read through it and practiced and then gave it a go with building my own little uh, GUI and uh, analyzing the data. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult for you, like with your background to learn to use this was it Igor, like basically this language? So actually, I was surprised. 
when I first learned a little bit about programming as an undergrad in the United States, it was with MATLAB I was working with, and I thought it was the most horrible thing ever. I was so petrified by it. Um, every time I had a course or any kind of class assignment to do with it, I just froze. It was impossible. But um, when I picked it up, picked up a little bit of programming again, and back in uh, Magdeburg, you know, in the other city I worked at, I just gave it a go. And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit because prior to doing that or in parallel, I was taking this Coursera course to, to learn R. And R was actually, I felt a little, a little more difficult to pick up. It's not as simple as, you know, Python or C or anything like that. So when I had to do, to work with C in this program, Igor, I mean, it takes quite a bit of practice, you know, a lot of trial and error with anybody who does programming, they, they know that. But, you know, if you're really, really passionate about it and you really are willing to put the hours in to, to practice and stuff, it becomes quite, you know, innate and, you know, normal. So I know that MATLAB can be quite frightening, especially if you don't have any programming background. I, I also needed to use MATLAB at school, not at school, at university, for doing some signal processing. And I thought, okay, why are we tortured with the other tools that may be better? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what do you do now at ICE? So at the moment, when I first started at ICE, I was hired yeah, as a business data analyst, and I was hired to uh, essentially help my coworkers work on, uh, we call them tickets, you know, essentially it's both internal and external customers. They come to us because we have the SQL capacity and access to the data warehouses in order to compile the reports that they need to then do their more, I guess, like high-level analysis. So I did that for the first couple of months when I started at ICE. And it was more about learning. I mean, SQL, I knew a little bit when I started, but it's really easy to pick up. You get the hang of it after one or two weeks. But it was more the business model that was actually quite complex. Just like where can I find all the information? Like what parameters do I have to apply in the SQL statement in order to get the correct information, especially for business separation? This data is not separated, you know, by a customer in different tables. They're all just meshed together in their respective tables. And you have to... I had to try to make sure that I wasn't providing information of one customer to another external customer. So, yeah, and I found this quite difficult at first. Um, and also, too, like taking scripts that my coworkers previously wrote and then just rerunning them. And if a customer asked for some kind of alteration, I would spend the day like just reading and understanding the script and then finding out how am I supposed to modify this script to be able to deliver, you know, the customer results. So that's what I did when I first started. There are also like you know, side projects where we do collaborations with other departments. And uh, usually when I work on those side projects, it's because uh, I have the program capacity and just the access to the data warehouse to then provide the data to, I guess, a more business-oriented analysts, the ones that have just have a greater business background in terms of the specific data model. And I worked with them, you know, to clean up the data, fetch it. And also, they also asked me like for my interpretation. So I give it a go and try to get some insights, you know, do some exploratory. And then we all work together to try to, I guess, come up with a story, you know, for the data and for, for the specific project. Yeah. So you, you need to prepare reports. So you need to fetch all the data in a form that is easy to put in the report. Do you also take care of the reports themselves or somebody else uses the data to visually arrange them, uh, the information? I usually don't really know what happens to the reports after I submit them to the customer. But from what I understand, all these customers, they really don't have any programming capacity. So what they essentially do is they do a lot of like analysis and look at the data in Excel. I guess they would create, you know, their basic graphics, what they would need in order to present this data then to some kind of a key stakeholder. But in terms of, uh, for instance, if they needed a dashboard, we would be the ones that would create the dashboard for them. They would not do that. So if they were to look at the data themselves, it's mostly just Excel. Mm -hmm. So for you, what you do is 
there are some data pipelines so you need to get data from a database but that you say is a little bit complicated there is data from different customers so you need to carefully get the data from there clean it prepare it and pass it over to somebody who then will analyze this data in excel yes now i'm just curious what actually does the company do you said it's something related to music right a music processing so there are two sides of the business some that the company works in in copyright and online data processing so for the copyright side they're the data warehouse for all the music metadata from societies you know in germany there's the gamma society and uh, in the uk there's prs in sweden there's stem and in the united states there's bmg so essentially different like publishers and societies they feed uh, loads of data to us um, in terms of like copyright information the names of the songs the creators, what rights they have to each work, how much percentage and royalty they should be receiving. So the copyright side of the business, they take care of all that. The online side of the business, they essentially take uh, reports from these streaming services and ingest them and process them. They Then they fetch the copyright data and calculate how much royalty should be paid out to each respective creator, society, or publisher. Mm -hmm. Okay, so somebody gets a song they stream it to the listeners and then you need to figure out how many listeners saw the song right so that you can calculate how much they should pay right yes so um, actually the streaming services when they send us the reports they essentially just state how many times a given work was uh, was streamed mm -hmm. and so we then we take that quantity but oftentimes you know the reports are not fully clean sometimes we need to find ways to identify the work so we can match them to the copyright database Mm -hmm. And so after they do the matching, then they can determine uh, what are the, the percentages in terms of like mechanical rights, performing rights, you know, different types of rights and how much, you know, a given artist should be receiving based on the, the stream count. Mm -hmm. And all that uh, you do, right? All this part of this process, I guess. So you receive some data from somebody, but you need to clean this, right? You need to also match these things that are sometimes difficult to match, right? So actually, there's a couple of hundred people that are involved in that whole data pipeline, <laughs> like, you know, ingesting the, the copyright data and making sure that it's correct. You know, there are some people that actually have to contact the different societies and publishers and ask them to confirm that the metadata is correct. And then there's people in the online department that they make sure that the Oracle data warehouse is correctly, you know, ingesting the data. And then they do some kind of inspection and see if the streaming services, if they provided the correct report or if they provided too many of the missing values and they have to go back and forth with the streaming service and tell them you must send us a new report, you know, more complete. And then my job is essentially is that I have to, um, based on what the customer requests, fetch the data in a given time point in the pipeline. If they want to know, say, oh, well, what was the state of the data at, at this time point A, then I should try to fetch it that way. And also, too, if they receive any kind of discrepancy in the reports in, in terms of how much you're being paid, we have to try to investigate as to why uh, this occurs. And when these type of investigations happen, for instance, we provide as to like the present state of the data. And then we have to communicate to like, you know, operation uh, departments that actually deal with the ingestion and the day to day work and ask them, like, oh, like what happens here? And then within their interdepartment, they try to explain it to us. And so it's essentially we're kind of, I guess, like the midpoint between, you know, the internal departments the data ingestion and the customers and providing the correct reports for them. And so we do various types of reports, you know, um, either they would be just Excel files that they can look on their computer, or we build, you know, custom dashboards for them and then provide refreshes. So then they always have the most up-to-date data. Yeah. 
Interesting. And can you tell us how you got this job? So you graduated from a bootcamp and then I imagine it wasn't easy to get this job. So how did you do this? Yeah, that was quite a journey. Uh, so I finished the bootcamp, I think the beginning of August of 2020. And I actually didn't get a job offer until December of, of 2020. So about four, four and a half months. You started this already after the pandemic, right? So I guess you applied to the bootcamp before the pandemic, right? And then the COVID started. Yeah, yes. That wasn't the best time, I guess, for looking for a job, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did not anticipate, you know, pandemic coming about and making, you know, the job search much easier. But, you know, hey, it's life, it's the world, it happens. The boot camp, I think I found out about it sometime around April of 2020. And then I finally got the funding and started it May of 2020. And then it finished the beginning of August of 2020. And then um, I had to do the job hunt, sent out like a ton of applications with getting constant feedback on CVs and cover letters and stuff like that. Like four or five months, right? It took yeah. quite some time. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite some time. And then when I talked to like other uh, fellow graduates or other people that were also like in the same boat as me, either doing career transitions or trying to find or break into, you know, the domain, they also had quite a bit of a uh, hard time, you know, applying and sending out and doing, you know, like those take home tests or like those take home challenges and stuff like that. Yeah. So how did it go for you? So you graduated in August and then you yes. found the job in December. So what did you do in these four or five months that actually eventually led to the job? Yeah. So in parallel to applying to all these jobs, going on LinkedIn or in Googling around and stuff like that, I volunteered for Omdena, mm -hmm. doing one of their eco projects. And so I chose to do that as kind of a CV filler, but also to keep me occupied and keep me like on my toes in terms of like coding and understanding machine learning and all that kind of stuff. And it was just a good way like to also maybe like a proper distraction from the worries of always uh, having to look for work and stuff. And that was also a, a really good experience. I, I learned a, a lot from other people and, you know, how they see coding and like the solutions they came up with and like the brainstorming and the collaboration and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's how I also filled up my time during those three months. It's Omdena, right? Omdena, yes. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that when we last time, when we talked, I think it was before you found a job. And I remember you were actually asking how to figure out if I'm more interested in engineering. But I think for you, you did this uh, bootcamp in data science. Yeah, yeah. But then you realized you're more interested in engineering. Yeah, maybe can you tell us a bit more about that? So how did you realize that you're more interested in engineering rather than science? And how did this affect your job search? So I remember at the time, I, I thought it was quite cool, you know, to be able to build a pipeline or to build platforms or to build a, a dashboards. And I also found that in the real world, it's not like a data science bootcamp where the data is uh, served to you in a, in a silver platter. And all you have to do is just analyze it. There's actually quite a lot of work that goes into it. And that typically involves, you know, a little bit more data engineering and, you know, fixing up the data. And so when I was uh, searching for jobs, I was actually searching for both data engineering and uh, data analytics. And I would see, you know, whichever one worked out first, I would go for. It turned out with this position that I eventually got hired for, I mean, it is titled the business data analyst. But honestly, I feel like I, I do both, both data analytics and data engineering, because with our team, we're in the, in the process of, you know, trying to automate as many of these customer reports as possible. So then we could do more advanced data analytics and like predictive modeling and, and stuff like that. And so a lot of this, you know, automation and automating and, you know, reducing our workload instead of just being SQL monkeys 
this actually takes like quite a bit of engineering, um, understanding the data warehouses, understanding how to optimize the SQL queries, and you know integrating these SQL queries into like either R or Python scripts, or even using Docker to push it to AWS and have it run at a fixed frequency. And you learned all that at TIS already, right? Or you already knew a bit of that. I think you cover, you learned a bit of Docker at Spice, right? Yeah, yeah. So I first learned to Docker at uh, Spice. And I, one of the projects that we worked on was uh, Docker-based, you know, with the, with the Twitter bot and stuff like that. But then I didn't touch it again. You know, once I finished my time at Spice, I didn't really touch on it again. And then at the end of last year, we found in the team that we could work better, more collaboratively and much easier if we used, uh, you know, Docker containers. So for instance, there was this one handover project I had from, from a colleague. He wrote all his scripts in R, but in his local machine. We had different versions of libraries, R libraries, you know, between those two machines. And then when it came to me, I had to like test the scripts and see if they run. I couldn't execute any of them just because I didn't have the appropriate libraries and installations. And when I tried to figure out like, you know, which ones to do, I had to downgrade so many uh, libraries and they said, no, this is not a proper solution. So we essentially decided to rebuild the scripts in doc containers and images to verify, you know, that they will always work. Um, and now that's, that's, that's what we do with the project. Anything we want, we want to run remotely on AWS, whether it be long scripts or automated reports, we first build them in Docker and then just push them to AWS for the, the developer to then start the, you know, the job, the frequency. Yeah, coming back to your job search, do you remember how many applications did you need to send Ooh. to eventually get the job? It was painful. I, had, I actually had to count at the end of the year. I think it was like uh, around 130. 130. Yeah, I remember I counted them on my computer. How did you keep track? Like, did you put this in Excel spreadsheet? I, I actually, eventually I had to do that. With every job application, I created my own, because you have to send your application in PDF format and stuff like that. So I kept, you know, every job description and every application that I submitted in PDF on my, on my computer. And then I think over the course of like two or three days, I had to go back to this directory in my computer and count how many job applications I sent. And yeah, it was one around 130-ish. Why did you need to create a folder for each application? Essentially for each application, I had one PDF, which is the job description. And the second PDF was the actual application that I sent. So, you know, the concatenated cover letter and CV. Yeah. And whatever, you know, form they wanted me to fill out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is, you were just keeping this for your own analysis afterwards? Yes, yes. So it was just for, like for my own records um, and for consistency. And in case I need to, you know, reference back to anything, it's right there. But yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, they're all little folders on my desktop. They're subfolders, you know, within a, a folder. <laughs> desktop, yeah. So what, was it helpful to keep it organized in such a way? Because usually when I look for a job, well, last time I wasn't, I was selective, but a few jobs before that, uh, the strategy I used was spray and pray, so just click as many apply buttons as possible without really keeping track of where I apply. And then I would sometimes get invites to talk to a recruiter. And then I thought, okay, what is this company doing? Like, and then they would ask me questions like, okay, tell us uh, what you know about us. And then, okay, what do I know about you? Nothing. <laughs> so yeah, well, that's yeah, yeah. I was going crazy. So did you keep track of these things to actually, you know, stay organized and to understand where you applied and know, keep track of what company is doing? Yeah, I actually did. So for instance, for, for applications, if I was really interested in a job post and I, I was fully intent on actually applying for it, I would save, you know, the, the job description as a PDF because, you know, um, as quickly as they post the jobs, as quickly, you know, they take them down. 
So it was just like a personal record. And it was also to see like, for instance, if I would go, I was later in the interview process and then they mentioned something about requirements, like, oh, we offered these benefits and this is our salary range and stuff like that. I would, you know, go back to the job description to see if, oh, is this still the case or did they change it quite a bit? Aha, uh -huh. that's smart. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you, know, you never know that that happens as well. And then also too, I kept like my applications to see, okay, what did I actually say? What did I actually write, you know, in my original application? You know, in case they mention it again in the interview, and then yeah, it'd be good to be consistent with at least in their eyes. After you have the interview, did you keep track of what were the questions, what you answered on these questions, so you know, it was more lightweight? Not at first, but then I started realizing that yeah, I, I, I should. So I, I did that quite a bit. I mean, I didn't create a spreadsheet for every single interview of that. But what I did was I just created like one massive doc of like uh, questions I felt stood out or I felt were either very challenging or, or very good. Um, and then I would write them down. I didn't exactly write down like what, how I actually responded, but my ideal response would be, you know, the aftermath when you know you're not nervous or anything like that. Yeah. So when you know the question and then you come back to this question and when you're not stressed, you just sit down and write your ideal answer. And that probably yeah. helps you get this question or a similar one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I, I guess there's only so many finite questions you know, companies can ask you. And it's also a good way to practice. Uh, for instance, if I had an interview and I was coming up, I would take my long list of collection of questions and I would just go through them one by one. And yeah, it helped a lot. By the way, do you remember? So from these 130 applications, how many first interviews did you have? I want to say between 10 and 13. So it's like 10% sort of conversion <laughs> rate or success rate. Yes, yes. See. And uh, what do you think was the most difficult thing during this process for you? Was it live coding perhaps, or maybe something else? I know many people, many people, it's very difficult to do live coding. So I'm wondering, was it for you the case? Or oh yeah. I mean, I only had one live coding session and that one I, I thought was quite difficult. I'm a nervous interviewer and I don't do very well under pressure, especially if someone is looking at my screen. And the, the thing that sucked about this one is that when they scheduled the interview with me, they actually didn't explain to me what would occur in the interview. I thought it would be like a, a multi-interview process where you would first, you know, meet the team or, and then possibly meet HR afterwards, you know, and stuff like that. But they all smushed it into one and they surprised me. I think like the last half an hour of the interview, oh, by the way, we're going to be doing a live coding challenge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so mean. <laughs> so definitely a live coding challenge. How, how did it go? Yeah, no, it didn't go very well because at the time um, I was quite bad at, at Python class, you know, writing a class and um, and I had to do that live. And at the time it was very difficult. I was not able to do it during the, the, the live code. And also too, the data engineer wanted to see like how I did Googling and, and stuff like that. And yeah, I was quite nervous for that. And I think I want to say 10 minutes after the interview, I was able to write the, the whole class. And then I, I sent it to them anyways, like, oh, here, just in case, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you still want to consider me, but it's so surprising, you know, how long it takes, you know, for you to do some kind of coding when, when you're under pressure alive versus like when you're just on your own figuring stuff out. So you said you couldn't do this live, but then after the interview ended, you just did this, right? Because you didn't have any yeah. and then you send it to them. And then what happened after that? I mean, um, in the end, uh, yeah, they sent me like an email, like, uh, I think like one or two weeks later saying, oh, yes, we felt so honored that there were so many applicants that applied and there's so many uh, nice applicants, you know, all the, the fluffy stuff. Basically rejection. 
Yeah, yeah. So it says you just like, oh, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're not going to continue with your application. But if you allow us, because, you know, of the GDPR and the, the data protection and stuff like that, we would like to keep uh, like your personal data on file. I mean, at the end, I decided that no, I'd like to exercise my rights to data privacy. And if should I want to apply for a new position there, you know, the ad will pop up again and I will just reapply. <laughs> okay, so you ask them to delete your data. Yes, yes. Okay. And then this way you can apply again and then they don't know. Well, well theoretically, right? If they follow the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is true. Yeah, technically, if they follow the process, yeah, they wouldn't know. But I mean, I also wonder too, you know, I mean, there's all these companies that say, say oh, we would like to keep your data just in case of anything. I mean, do companies actually go through their actual, you know, applicant pool <laughs> to look for people? Yeah. So for me, I'm like, you know, th there's no point in approving this. And especially with, you know, this, this day and age with like, you know, all the, the, the data privacy problems, if I can uh, avoid it, I would rather keep my data to myself. I think I primed you a little bit when I asked what was the most difficult thing. Maybe you were going to say something else, not life coding? I have to give it a good thing. I mean, I would say there are like many difficult things in different stages of, of the whole process. At the beginning, it was creating a good CV and a, and a cover letter. That was hard at the beginning, but once I got into good practice with that, it was okay. I think I would say the one thing that was difficult and I still have trouble with is about the salary negotiation. I think that that is the most difficult because I find that's a key determinant as to whether they even consider you as an applicant and how far along you go in the application process. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a, a necessary skill set to have to know like your worth and to really insist on it. How, how do you know that? Especially if you're fresh out of a bootcamp, you do not have such insights into the market. Yeah, yeah. How do you know that? When you first start doing the job search and then many companies ask you for your asking salary, you just have to do a lot of Googling and research, you know, on, um, I think for instance, LinkedIn offers some stats, especially the city that you reside in, how much you should be making ideally. But it's also to it's, they're not like very clear stats because they don't consider very much your, your experience level. It's, it's quite ambiguous, but also to just talking to different people and they did offer quite a bit of career coaching at, at Spice, you know, the, the, where I did the bootcamp and that helped a lot with understanding like what kind of asking salary I should have. Yeah. Well, like, I'm just wondering if uh, this is your first job and you're looking just for your first job, would it be a good strategy to say, I am ready to take whatever salary you offer me, just hire me or not? Really? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Why not? Absolutely not. Because of course they're going to give you like, you know, the lowest salary that they can. Uh, companies, they're, they're going to try to save as much as possible. Um, they want to hire the most experienced person for the least amount of money. I've heard that also that if you ask for too low, it's a reflection of how unconfident you, you feel. So I've heard that the asking salary that you have actually is a reflection of how confident you feel um, of your skills. Or how well you know the market, right? So maybe you don't Yeah, know. yeah, that is true. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that's a skill set in itself, knowing the, the market well enough to, to ask for the right salary. Okay, yeah, that could be tough, I imagine, even for people with experience already. Although with people with experience who already have a job, they can just, okay, what I'm making now, let's add 10% to that. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a good baseline, right? But if you don't have a job, then, okay, how much should I ask? Not to ask too much, but also not to ask too low. And for you, what was helpful, you said you had a career coach at Spiced who helped you with these numbers, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so having career coach and also just having uh, friends or like colleagues from from the boot camp that um, are more better into industry and knowing how to do salary negotiation and knowing how, how to do uh, self-evaluation for salary negotiation and stuff like that. I also consulted with them a lot and that helped a lot too. So actually uh, networking is, is, is quite helpful as well. Can you share any tips when it comes to salary negotiation? Something that your friends shared with you and what was helpful for you? For the position that I got, I think in the end, I, I did ask a slightly below the market a little bit, like about five, 5K below by accident, um, because I typically asked around the average market, but by accident for that application, I put in a, a little less. And I guess that's why one of the reasons why, why they took me as well. I don't know, For in, in terms of tips, I would say my friends or and also the career coach, they told me to always ask for a little more and then you negotiate your way uh, quite down. Or also too, I also have a friend that told me that she waited to hear like what their salary offer was. And then she always added one or two K more. And she's like, they're not going to turn down my application just for over one or 2000 euros. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the tips. So you studied data science, right? But you ended up not doing data science. Was it actually useful for you? What you learned at Spiced? Yeah, it really was. Yeah, in terms of like, for instance, of programming alone, I had never worked with Python prior to going to Spice. And of course, now I work a lot with Python and SQL as well. And a lot of the tools, like data engineering tools that I learned in at Spice, I also use on my job as well, or will use, uh, for instance, uh, Docker. Uh, now I use that a lot. And then I also learned a little bit about Airflow while I was in Spice. And in my, in my team, they're interested in, in trying to incorporate Airflow into the, into the everyday activity. Yeah, even though I, I don't do a, a data science at the moment, but there's plans for us, a couple of members in our team to, to start doing more predictive modeling, so more uh, machine learning. A lot of the things I learned at Spice was very helpful for my job. Mm -hmm. If, let's say, you were to go back in time and look for a job again, but with remembering all the experience that you have right now, what would you do differently now? I would say... I guess I consult a little earlier in terms of uh, get career coaching a little earlier in, in the game. I remember I did apply to a couple of jobs and had one or two interviews prior to attending the bootcamp at Spiced and prior to getting to career coaching. And I retrospectively looking back, I see I made a ton of mistakes when uh, I was doing that interview about uh, salary expectations. I would definitely do that um, much better. I mean, in, in the end, you know, we can't control everything. And also to the markets are changing forever even more networking, even though during the pandemic, it's quite difficult, you know, to do a lot of networking, everything was remote. So you only met people, you know, video, uh, via video or chat or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe uh, to do the career transition even earlier, you know, back in like uh, 2015 or something like that, when you yourself did it. Yeah. It must have been very different back then. Oh, it was different. Like I had just one interview and after that they hired me. Oh, nice. <laughs> like it's complete opposite of the experience you had. Yeah, yeah, it was. So I, I literally had just one interview and that was it. Like it wasn't even a series of interviews. Like right now companies torture applicants through like four or five interviews. But for me, it was just one. So first the future team lead reached out to me on LinkedIn. We had a short call. Then I went to the office on the next day. And then a couple of days after that, they gave me an offer. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't think my experience of career transitioning is still valid. I don't think this works this way anymore. Yeah, I think, oh, uh, yeah, it's uh, quite different now. And people yeah. say, yeah. So that's why, as I said at the beginning, when people invite me to talk about career transitioning, I usually say, yeah, you know, like 
things were different back then. That's why I really like inviting people who did the career transition recently, so they have more fresh perspective on things. Because now it's more difficult, right? So there, there are now all these boot camps. The demand is maybe higher, but also there are more people on the market. So it's it's very different right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, have you interviewed people um, that had the transition even more recently with the past year or six months? No, maybe not. I mean, I, I wonder <laughs> what it is now, you know, like, is it even worse? Or is yeah, maybe I should. But still, for you, it took like five months. I think this is a pretty long time and it was difficult. Yeah, yeah. So I hope it's easier now. Than I that. hope so too. Okay. And, uh, yeah, you said you did a ton of mistakes. And then you needed to talk to career coaches who pointed out to these mistakes. One of them were salary negotiations. Do you remember what kind of other mistakes you did? Maybe it's uh, something I, I said incorrectly in an interview. Like they were expecting one answer and I gave them another. I think also to sometimes, I guess, you know, like tech challenges that I did for another uh, data engineering position. I think they, they didn't like, uh, I guess, like some of the, the techniques that I use in, in my code. And they felt like, oh, it was essentially the same thing over and over again. And then I felt like in the instructions, when they gave me the take-home challenge, uh, they were quite ambiguous in the email exchange. They made a lot of references like, oh, but we had stated this, we had stated that. And I felt like the hiring manager, like how he was communicating what they wanted wasn't very clear. So I guess that retrospectively, to like, I would have spoken out and said, no, um, this is not what you said. This is not how I interpreted it. Of course, at the time, you know, you're, you're a little nervous and you're a little too humble. So you tend to stay quiet. But like looking back now, I feel like I have a little more power because I have a job and stuff. I'm like, no, that's not what you said. So I can mm-hmm. stand up for myself and stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I see that we have some questions. So one of the questions is from Vadim. Is what are the top skills or tech stack that you believe helped you to get this role? Definitely uh, knowing a bit of uh, programming. So, so both Python and R. And I did put that I, I knew SQL, even though I had only done it for, I think, like two weeks in the boot camp. They liked a lot that I, I went to a boot camp. So I had experience with using machine learning and stuff like that. So they definitely hired me for that. I felt like uh, one thing that they really liked about me in the interview was how I recognized the importance of clean data, of doing data quality checks. Because, you know, if you don't check uh, your data and whether it's clean or not, it really skews your, your results and your reports. And I see it from the day-to-day work that it's really necessary for us to do that. So I think like, that was the one of the things that, that stood out. Can you tell us a bit more about this checks, uh, check-in for data quality? Was it like a take-home test and then you did like you went an extra, the extra mile and added some checks or how did it so for this particular position, it was just on SQL challenges where they hired another company to provide me with an SQL test, like a live SQL session. I mean, I had, I think, like an hour to answer uh, three or four SQL challenges. But actually, this d- data cleaning thing, it came more in the interview process. I think in terms of skills, you know, everyone, they go to boot camps now or do these online courses, and they essentially have, I guess, the kind of the same skill sets. I guess what they look for in interviews, what stands out is like if the person recognizes, you know, what's essential on the job, because a lot of companies think, and and it is kind of true that you can learn things on the job, whatever skills you're missing, technical skills you're missing, you can learn it on the job. But I guess, for instance, like if you know how to provide insights, if you know how to detect anomalies, if you know what to do um, when, you know, data is just not clean and not organized and you need to do quite a bit of, you know, fixing it up. Like what steps do you take and stuff like that? I would say they consider this a little more important. Mm-hmm. 
And you did learn quite a few things on the job, right? Things that you didn't know about, or maybe you just worked with them a little bit. Like SQL, you said you spent only two weeks learning SQL, but now it's pretty much all that you do all day, right? Well, maybe not that, but like 50% at least. So you definitely can learn all that. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I didn't know this before I started working at my job, but there's different flavors of SQL. You know, each data warehouse has their own format of SQL. So for instance, like one SQL query that I'll execute in one data warehouse, like for example, Redshift, sometimes won't work in an Oracle-based data warehouse. I'll have to customize the queries in that way. So yes, it's just learning to recognize that. And another question from Bala. Did you learn any cloud platform at Bootcamp? Yeah, yeah. So at Spice, we did AWS just because it's free for the first year. I mean, it's actually quite cheap to continue learning even after the, the first year is done. I did a little bit of a Google Cloud Platform, but not as much. But I think in terms of like a cloud platforms, AWS is like the most requested. And when you learned Google Cloud Platform, was it already after the bootcamp? Yeah, it was. I was actually exploring how to uh, do, I think, some kind of dashboards in R at the time. And so I think there's this one Medium article I found that how it was possible on Google Cloud Platform. So for one weekend, I just sat down and gave it a go over there. A good thing about Google Cloud Platform is when you sign up, you get $300 and you can do pretty much everything with this $300. While in AWS, there are only some services that you can use under this three tier. So in Google Cloud Platform, you have more freedom, but it's also only for three months. Yeah. So not one year. Actually, I also remember from Google Cloud Platform when I was uh, trying out some stuff, those credits actually went by quite fast if you don't know what you're doing and if you let things run like all night or, yeah, you don't pay attention to, to what you're executing, those credits can go by pretty fast. But at least it's not your $300. Yeah, that's true. That, that's good. <laughs> and then in the worst case, if $300 is gone, then you can just you know create maybe a new account. Yeah, that is true. Well, yeah. uh, if you have your $300 and they are gone, then yeah, you don't have them anymore. <laughs> yes, it's quite painful. Yeah, okay. So let's say you again needed to go through the same career transitioning. So you work in academia, doing research, your contract is over, and you want to go to programming. Would you again go through a data science bootcamp or you would have done things differently? I mean, in my personal opinion, what I remember when I was uh, looking for jobs in the job market, a lot of companies, they equated like uh, online courses and a data science bootcamp as the same. I actually didn't really see a difference. I preferred um, the data science bootcamp and, and I would do it again just because I had a couple different teachers to talk to and customize projects and, and just interacting and working with other students. I mean, I think this is invaluable. I would definitely do it again. Would you maybe consider doing a data engineering bootcamp? I think there are in Berlin, there is at least one, maybe two, not as many as data science bootcamps, but there are data engineering bootcamps as well. Would you maybe now consider doing this kind of bootcamp or you would still go with the data science one? I mean, that's hard to say um, because at the time, I think of when I was doing the data science bootcamp, they try to fit a little bit of everything, a little bit of data analytics, data engineering, and data science. Of course, they concentrated more. It sounded like that when you described that. So you were doing Docker, yeah. you were doing machine learning, you were doing Airflow there. But data science is also a little bit of everything, right? So you need to know, to some extent, a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it would depend on the person. If you were a person that, I mean, at the time for me, I think it was good because um, I wasn't sure, like, 
what part of the data science field I want to get into, whether it be analytics, uh, predictive modeling, or engineering. So it was good to go to a boot camp that had a little bit of everything. But I guess if you're a person that knows you're dead set, like, oh, I definitely want to do analytics, I definitely want to do data engineering, then I guess those boot camps would be great for you. So I guess they kind of like, you know, serve your niche a little more. I guess not everyone has this luxury of knowing what exactly they want to do that is after true. academia, right? So in academia, you understood that you want to do coding, but what exactly, what does it mean to do coding, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, even though I knew I didn't want to work in academia anymore and I wanted to do more, I, I guess, like analytics and, and coding centric things, but I also wasn't 100% sure exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, maybe can you tell us a bit about the projects you did at Spice? Like at the end, I know that you have some individual projects when you needed to work yourself on some things. I think you did something related to Twitter analytics, right? So it was essentially learning how to build a data pipeline using Docker to fetch data from a Twitter API based on whatever hashtags you're interested in or parameters and then program and then uh, coding, you know, like one of those bots on Slack would provide you with the tweet information like once every hour or once every minute or something like that. Was it actually a project that you needed to do yourself, your individual project, or something that everyone needed to do? It was one that everyone did. So they, you know, outlined the project and they custom built it. And then they provided us with lessons every day on how to do a different part of the project until we, you know, we delivered it on Friday. Mm -hmm. So it took one week to build this pipeline. Was it uh, the lesson about building pipelines, you said? Yeah, so it was essentially like learning to build uh, Docker containers, uh, you know, for one to just collect the tweets, a second one to clean them up, and then a third one to push the tweet information to Slack every hour. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, so let's say somebody graduates from Bootcamp, a Data Talks Club will also call them Zoom Camp, but they are similar like uh, workshops. So people finish these courses with a bunch of projects that they did on the course and also individually as, uh, as a part of the course. How to actually sell, quote unquote, this to future employees? Like, how do you say that, okay, this is the thing I did and I'm valuable because I know how to do these things. So how to actually show that you can do these things using these projects? Do they even believe you? Because if you do this as a part of your, the course, right? So maybe you just follow the instructor and that's all. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, it is quite tricky. I mean, they always tell you, oh, you'd have to build, you know, get a portfolio full of projects, you know, to show at your job application. But then also, too, when they see that these are projects are basically from like, you know, a boot camp or from an online course, and then probably they see the same projects over and over again. I guess they do get quite tired of it. I would say maybe the individualized, the personal projects would be better. Or if you like, you know, custom made a project yourself, and you show, start the project, like, why did you choose that topic? Like, why are you interested in doing this particular project? I think this stands out a little more. I mean, uh, for one of the data engineering jobs I applied for, I mean, I, I didn't get it in the end, but one of the reasons why they chose my application to go for, continue in the application process was is because they found the individual project at the end of the, the bootcamp that I did was something on sustainability. They thought that that was interesting. And they saw that I was like interested in sustainability. So that's why they chose me for the application process. What was the project about? Can you tell us about it? It was essentially where I was trying to build a, a data pipeline where I would fetch tweets that had were associated with a sustainability hashtags, and then I would clean up the data. And then I was in, on the like in the process of trying to build a dashboard like to show different stats and like different features and like different insights about the tweets that that, that were being tweeted at the time. One of the the things I never got to pick up again, or I have I just haven't taken the time to to finish it up. 
but I found that there's actually quite a bit of a tweet box on data. Mm-hmm. Or for instance, I did a little bit of sentiment al- analysis on the tweets and tweet bots, they skewed the sentiment analysis uh, very much. So yeah, that's another lesson learned. You, like, you need to implement ways to clean this activity out so you don't get them in, in your final results. Probably there are not so many of them, like maybe a handful that are most active that you can maybe just remove all of them from the analysis. This is my experience with Twitter bots. Like there are just a, a few that are most uh, annoying, the most visible ones. Yeah, but I think the, the problem is like just knowing to identify them, especially if you just have like tons and tons of data in your MongoDB. Uh, right, you don't know which of them. Exactly, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to tell. So, I mean, there, I know there are algorithms out there that already can, um, you can implement in your pipeline that will help you flag, you know, which ones are actually tweet bots. But that these are based on, I know one at an academic research lab in the States, you know, they consistently develop this algorithm to be able to determine the tweet bots and they do, do Twitter analysis themselves in the, for social sciences. So why this company was interested in that? Is it something they do also as a company? No, it was just because the title of my project was, I guess, the like current opinion on sustainability. I'm not sure if they actually dug into my project. I mean, in the interview process, they didn't ask me like too many like detailed questions about it. They just asked me like, oh, give like a brief summary on, on this project. And that was it. Oh, I was also interested in, you know, their mission because they were a sustainability company mm-hmm. that took a personal interest in that topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard a, a similar story, a little bit different about also like personal interest. So one person got a job interview because they mentioned meditation as the interest. And that person who was uh, doing screening was also into meditation. Ah. So that's why... <laughs> They invited uh, that person and they talked a bit about that at the beginning. So you never know what will work out at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Sustainability could be your interest in meditation, could be anything. But uh, I guess this is not easy to, like when you have a pile of applications, like how do you select who to interview, right? Yeah, that is very true. Yeah, we have another question from Chris. So Chris is asking, what was your cohort like at Spiced at similar career stages as you, people with PhD, masters, etc., or they had different background? Oh, we all had a different backgrounds, but it was also quite nice. Uh, they were also in their transition phases of their lives. So even though we came from different backgrounds, we related to each other so much, and we actually exchanged a lot of our personal, you know, career stories. But there were a couple of project former project managers. There were uh, two people that were on the verge of finishing their, their PhDs. There were others that used to work in consulting, like for many different domains. I've heard that there are some cohorts where they, they have like either more or less diversity in terms of, you know, a different backgrounds. I think that either the cohort before or two cohorts before me, they were mostly academics trying to um, get into machine learning and stuff like that. But yeah, every cohort is different. Which background was the most interesting to you? Do you maybe remember? Hmm. I felt like the, the one that um, transition or difference was one of my colleagues. Uh, he has a background in literature and was doing his PhD in the classics, but uh, he wanted to get into data engineering and coding. Uh, and I, I felt like that was such a huge jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was he was super good. I There was a bug I couldn't solve. I always go to him and say, oh, can you please help me out? Yeah, I got this bug. And he's like, oh, yeah, here, let me take care of it for you. <laughs> it was really cool. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, a couple of episodes ago, I invited Jessica, and she was working as a barista and went to, you know, coding. That's also quite an interesting change from barista to coding. Yeah, yeah. We should be wrapping up. 
do you want to say anything before we finish today? No, I mean, I think your questions essentially covered all, all of them. Yeah, and I mean, it was really cool doing this. The first time in a long time that I've been asked about, like, you know, this whole transition phase in my life. It was nice, you know, reminiscing about all these things. Mm -hmm. I think one year or maybe one year is a bit too long, like six months, one year after somebody like already got a job. I think this is a good time to ask how they did the transition. Not that I waited on purpose for one year before contacting you, but then I realized, okay, maybe I should talk to Gloria and ask <laughs> her about that. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot for joining us today, for sharing your experience, for talking about all the difficulties you had in your job search process. Thanks also everyone for attending today, for asking questions. And I think that would be it for today. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Yeah, have a great weekend. Goodbye. Thanks you too. Bye-bye.